Welcome to the Public Rally. At the time of this broadcast, House managers for the impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump are close to wrapping up their presentation. Whenever there is a crisis involving the office of the president, it is invariably compared to the Watergate scandal that brought down the presidency of Richard Nixon. Are there any instructive lessons that the crisis that's nearly 50 years ago and the present moment? To place the impeachment of Donald Trump in historical context, I'm joined by Richard Davis. Davis was a U.S. attorney for the special prosecutors during the Watergate hearings, as well as assistant secretary of the Treasury. He recently penned an op-ed in the New York Daily News that juxtaposed uh, Watergate with the current moment. Richard Davis, welcome to the public morality. My pleasure. It's an honor to have you. Uh, let's, let's begin this conversation with the premise of, of your recent op-ed uh, that appeared in the New York Daily News that Donald Trump isn't Richard Nixon. And, and how are you specifically defining that, sir? Well, I think that my focus was that when Richard Nixon resigned in 1974, there was an ability for the country to move on because it was clear that, well, Richard Nixon had won an extraordinary victory, winning 49 states in the Electoral College just two years before. The Republican Party and the country were prepared to move on. The situation is not the same with Donald Trump and the Republican Party now because the Republican Party and Donald Trump have decided they're not going to move on. Um, the Republican Party has decided to embrace uh, and continue to embrace Trump and Trumpism. Um, and so that the dynamics of what is involved in what I was writing about a prosecution decision, but even more broadly, are, are quite different. And we have a situation where as a result of both actions that uh, the Republicans and Trump have taken, as well as the different media world for, uh, that exists today than existed in 1970, uh, in, in, that existed in 1974, um, you know, we're not going to be able to say, you know, Trump is gone. Now let's just focus on the country's problems and we can ignore him and, uh, what he put the country through. You you mentioned that different media world. Uh, if we look back, Watergate occurred in what nineteen seventy two. It it was a uh, what roughly a year, fourteen months, a year or so later that we actually find out that there are actually some tapes, and then it's another year, fourteen months or so before Richard Nixon resigns. Uh, do you see us having that type of patience to withstand that? that type of longevity? Well, you know, it, it's hard to know if you could have that kind of patience, uh, you know, today. I mean, then you had three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS, and everybody's local newspaper. Um, that's what that's what the media world was, and some magazines, Time, Life, Newsweek. That's obviously a very different media world today. And with social media, it's like, all right, we need instant news and, and instant reaction. So I don't know if you have the patience, but you know we we have seen that the Mueller investigation. It took a long time. It didn't produce what some people thought it would produce. And you know the Watergate investigation, as an investigation, really began in early nineteen in nineteen seventy three, um, and it really was about fifteen or sixteen seventeen months from the time the scandal really erupted 
when the focus became on the cover-up as much as the crime and Nixon's resignation. One thing that may be similar, I'm speaking specifically in, the, in at the time that we're recording this broadcast, that when the Watergate investigation, or, the, or the, at least the hearings commenced, would it be fair to say that there were not the requisite Republican votes when it began to uh, either impeach President Nixon or to convict him? And, it's, and it was sort of over time where there was a sea change. Would that, would that be accurate? I think that's, that's very accurate. I think what you have to look at it is that what happened was a series of a, a thousand, death by a thousand cuts in the Richard Nixon case, because you had the original Watergate event and then publicity about the potential of a cover-up, which led to the Watergate hearings. Uh, and that, you know, that impacted support for Nixon, but he still had a significant support. Then you had the Saturday Night Massacre, where to try and prevent the tapes from coming out, he fired the special prosecutor, the attorney general, and the deputy attorney general resigned. That was a pivotal moment, because that's what really led to the impeachment process really beginning. And then there was, you know, the discovery that there was an 18 and a half minute gap in one of the tapes when they were finally produced. That led to something. And then they would, when tapes gradually began to be released, that led to further deterioration. So by the time in August, when this final tape was released as a result of a, of a Supreme Court decision upholding the special prosecutor's subpoena, in which you heard Richard Nixon trying to get the um, uh, CIA to influence the FBI to uh, mislead them, uh, to prevent them from following an appropriate investigative lead, his support just evaporated. But having said that, I think it's important to remember that even before that, there were 17 Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee. Seven of those 17 voted in favor of impeachment of Richard Nixon on at least one article, even before that. But when that final tape come out, came out because of the gradual and, as I say, the death by a thousand cuts, the Republicans recognized and that he, not only would the, an impeachment vote be successful in the House, but he would you know, almost certainly be convicted in the Senate. And that's when a delegation led by Barry Goldwater conservative Republican uh, senator from Arizona and the Republican congressional leadership went to Richard Nixon and said, Mr. President, it's time to go. You, you mentioned Senator, senator Goldwater, um, who led that coalition down, down to the White House, a Republican coalition. When he gave an, you know, a frank, honest assessment of, of, of Nixon's uh, political chances, when he said it was time to go, Goldwater, and I, I, don't, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I'm surmising, Goldwater wasn't under the illusion that the party belonged to Nixon. Is that the, that's not the same case now, is it? You know, it, 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 it is a difference. I mean, you know, I think what we're seeing is there is a struggle right now in the Republican Party about who, who that party belongs to. It has been, obviously, in his four years. Uh, it was the Trump party. Um, you, I think at some point after the election, uh, some thought that maybe that would end. And but, but right now, it looks like it's still the Trump party. I think you're right. In 1974, well, again, as I said before, Nixon had won an extraordinary victory in 1972 with over 60% of the vote. And uh, winning all every state other than Massachusetts, and he didn't win the District of Columbia. 
he wasn't the kind of dominating figure because, well, uh, you know, there are many things that you could say appropriately about how bad a president and bad a person Donald Trump is. He's a very effective demagogue. And he has managed, therefore, to use his powers of demagoguery and the modern media in order to really take control in some ways of the Republican Party. I'm speaking with Richard Davis. Davis uh, was a former U.S. attorney for the Special Prosecutor's Office during the Watergate hearings and as well as former Secretary of the Treasury. Um, I just out of curiosity, Richard, wasn't the Special Prosecutor's Office that that you were part of eventually replaced by the Special Counsel Office? And and how might are those how are those different? Well, the Special Prosecutor's Office that I was a part of was created not as a permanent institution, and it was created not under any pre-existing regulations. It was was created as a result of the fact that the uh, new attorney general was being nominated, Elliot Richardson. The Democrats controlled the Senate, and they said, we will only confirm a new attorney general if you create a special prosecutor. So in you know, in the spring of, uh, of of 1973, a special office was created, and it actually had broader authority and more independence than what came later. Because what came later, at least when Robert Mueller was appointed, you know, when it was there was no statute in place, and it was an you know a, a Department of Justice regulation which basically describe when there should be an independent counsel. And actually, as we saw, require the independent counsel in many cases actually to go to the Department of Justice to get authorities and to to follow uh, all the Department of Justice policies. Uh, When Archibald Cox was appointed, he he had really total independence. Now, it didn't save him from being fired. (laughs) I mean... Yeah, uh, but uh, but uh, it was that firing which led off to the fire the firestorm, which ultimately led to Richard Nixon's demise. We were talking earlier about just sort of the difference uh, politically, and I read uh, this morning at the time of this broadcast that Republican uh, Senator Rick Scott of Florida said that the trial was quote a waste of time which says to me, given uh, some of the heart-wrenching footage put forth that I watched with the House managers, nothing will move the needle. Are we engaging ultimately? Is this ultimately a waste of time? Is there some underlying importance here that, that, that uh, uh, in addition to whether or not former President Trump is convicted? I, I don't think it's a waste of time. I mean, I think that it would have been nice if after uh, Donald Trump lost. And yes, he really did lose the election. Uh, we've been able to say, all right, we're moving, we're moving past that. But the events of, of January 6th were of, of monumental significance. And the House managers have really made a very powerful case about that it wasn't an isolated event. It was, it was the consequence of a whole series of actions by uh, former President Trump. And what uh, havoc was wreaked that day, the dangers, and how the president on that day uh, was engaged in a dereliction of duty even after the riot began. I mean, think that he was, uh, while the rioters were in the Capitol, he is still tweeting attacks on Vice President Pence, whose life was was threatened. 
So I, you know, know, whether uh, there's not a conviction um, uh, because Republican senators decide that they, (coughs) excuse me, still want to follow and, you know, Trump uh, and let the Republican Party be represented by Trump. I think the American public needs to hear this story. There needs to be at least that accountability. And the fact that there there are more Republican votes than before, meaning in the first impeachment to convict, I think itself can be significant. But I think this is a story that has to be told, and I think it's been told in in a way which shows that it wasn't an isolated act on a single day, and it's important for history to, to remember that. Mm. You, you wrote in your New York Daily News piece, I'm quoting you now, but most important, declining to prosecute Trump would not enable the country to move past the divisiveness of the Trump era because the Republican Party appears to have decided that it's not going to do so. If you would, say more about that, if you would, what exactly you meant. Well, in in 1974, after the resignation, you know, I you know, we were all asked before the pardon for our recommendations on whether to prosecute Richard Nixon. I wrote to the special prosecutor. I said, "Look, this is a difficult decision because there are two competing considerations. One is accountability and equal justice. Obviously, that favored prosecution. The other is, you know, this has been a traumatic period. There have been an obsession with Watergate." We allow a new president to move beyond that. And that's, I thought, was an argument that could be made. What I really was saying is that argument doesn't exist today because in 1974, Republican parties themselves had moved away from Richard Nixon. So the country could move past that. But in, in in 2021, the Republican Party is not moving away from Donald Trump. Stand up and say, oh, he did something wrong. He was wrong. He should be impeached, or um, I'm not going to you know, stop this trial. Uh, those people are being censured. So, that, you know, if the country's not going to move on in any event, then, you know, take that consideration out. It's not relevant anymore. And, and a prosecutor should decide on the merits. You know, I think they have to have a very strong case because I don't think you want to have an indictment and an acquittal. But if you, you know, but I think we might as well go ahead and judge these cases, look at the facts, decide whether there's a strong enough case and proceed because the Republican Party is not allowing the country to move past Trump, which would be an argument against prosecution. You mentioned your your initial letter uh, about sort of the, the, the give and take about uh, prosecuting Nixon, Ford, about a month after Nixon resigns, uh, Ford pardons Nixon, has the notion of a preemptive pardon, which essentially what Ford did, because Nixon, I, I believe Nixon had not been charged, has the notion of a preemptive pardon ever been challenged? I don't think, I don't think it's been, it's been challenged, meaning you know, pardoning somebody before they've been officially charged. Indeed, to go back in history, my recollection is correct. I'm not because I was alive at the time. George Washington uh, pardoned those who participated in the Whiskey Rebellion. Uh, I don't think they had all been charged. Obviously, later, um, Jimmy Carter pardoned those who invaded the draft in Vietnam, even if they had not been charged. So I, I think 
that power to pardon somebody who has not yet been charged has not been challenged, and I think the sense is that that it would be constitutionally permissible. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you cleared up that you were not part of the uh, prosecution office when, in the Whiskey Rebellion. I'm really glad you cleared that up for us. Uh, <laughs> you also cite in your piece quote, the current GOP party has decided that it's, it's acceptable to have a leader, someone who constantly lies, refers to violent invaders of the Capitol as people he loves, who made their point, has undermined our democracy, and now welcomes into the party people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who also casually discuss murdering the Speaker of the House. That seems to me, I mean, I guess what you're alluding to right there is something that really, that's, it's well beyond uh, the, 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 the grounds of impeachment. It's, it's a much more sinister problem for our nation to grapple with. I think it's a very serious problem. And I, I think that my point was that there could be a way that the Republican Party could say, that's not the party we want. And yes, Donald Trump would still have a band of supporters, and that band would be in the millions. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not you, know, you, know, you know, minimizing that. But the party as a party could repudiate that by repudiating Trump. And, you know, they, they could they could have repudiated Trump by convicting him at the trial. They could repudiate Trump by, in a much more clear manner, you know, making. Uh, uh, stating that you know that the big lie about the election was a big lie that uh, you know they could try and distance themselves from Trump, but they're not doing that, and therefore they're allowing that Trump and the things that he has represented become identified with the party, so that you know that you know that Marjorie Taylor Greene you know, is becoming the face of the Republican Party. And I would think, you know, I'm not a Republican, but I do think we, we're better off with a strong two-party uh, state where we don't live in fear if one party wins. And the Republicans at this point have not taken the steps to distance themselves from what Donald Trump represents. Now, now historically speaking, what, you, what you're referring to, what, what this party should do, um, granted, it was not as large in scope, but didn't the Republican Party of the 50s do something similar to what you're advocating with the John Birch Society? Well, the, the Republican Party, yes, you had the John Birch Society, and you had McCarthyism. I remember, you know, you had McCarthyism, which, you know, he was the senator from... Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin, Republican senator from Wisconsin, who you know led this uh, anti-communist crusade built on you know a, a thread of lies in terms of his specific accusations and building upon the fear of communism that existed at the time. And ultimately, it took time. Uh, the Republican Party repudiated him. So you know, there are you know we've had poison in our political system. Going back many years, you know, at various times. And the issue is, how do we confront it? Do we decide that it is a poison and we act against it? Or do we say, I will live with it? And I think it's important that all our political parties say we're not going to tolerate poison within our political system. And that's the danger we have now with what's happening with the Republican Party. The audio of the Watergate tapes became uh, persuasive enough so that it was unlikely Nixon would survive impeachment and conviction. 
But the January 6th video does not appear, at this point at least, that 17 Republicans, given the number who've stated they've already made up their minds, it won't move the needle. Do, do you see this as, as an organic evolution of politics? If, God forbid, if something should happen and it's a Democratic president, the Democrats would be emboldened to do likewise. Well, you know, I would hope that this never happens again. But if I would hope that if it was a Democratic president, enough Democrats would say this is intolerable, that they would take the different position than the Republicans have taken, and that more of them would uh, support impeachment and conviction of the president. I mean, you know, to some extent, the uh, Republicans might say, oh, but look, you defended Bill Clinton. You didn't, as Democrats, didn't vote to convict him. That was fundamentally a different situation. His conduct was horrible. It was immoral. But it was covering up a sexual affair. Fundamentally different than what happened on January 6th, a threat to our democracy, inciting an insurrection. Uh, it's also very different than Watergate, frankly. You know, Watergate was uh, the underlying crime was a secret group operating under the auspices of the White House and the president's reelection committee, uh, burglarizing the uh, opposition party's office to try and steal damaging what they believe to be damaging material. Very, those Watergate and what happened on January 6th, very, very different situations. So I would have hoped that more Republicans would have recognized what is involved for the country in this. I mean, some plainly have stood up um, and they deserve credit, um, but not enough. And I think that's 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 frankly uh, a moment of sadness for, I think, me and I think for many others, because we would have liked to think that when it came to what happened on January 6th and the president's conduct leading up to it and including on January 6th, that more people would have stepped up and said, this is unacceptable. I mean, say more about that, 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 that there won't be, looks like, uh, unless there's some sort of smoking gun that we're all unaware of. It, it doesn't look like there are going to be 17 Republican votes to convict based on the evidence. What does that say about the American narrative to you? Well, it's, you know, it says that, you know, that at least there's a segment that is important segment is unwilling to uh, eliminate the poison from our political system that Trump has represented. And it means that um, while he's no longer president, there are too many who are still concerned either uh, about retribution, that, you know, people that will cause a primary or that, you know, somebody to oppose them or that they want to inherit his base. And so they're thinking of the politics. I would think that January 6th should go beyond politics, and it's showing that we're not there yet. What, ha what happened to uh, vote your conscience? <laughs> well, it's turned into a vote of, you know, what is, what is in the political interest? Because, I, I mean, you know, look, um, I'm prepared to say that uh, you know, maybe somebody could say, oh, you, Richard Davis, are not the most objective observer. You're a Democrat, not a Republican. But I actually think that objective observers looking at these arguments and listening to these arguments uh, would have easily come to the conclusion that this was a perfectly legitimate trial to hold and that 44 Republican senators have voted no jurisdiction completely wrong. And I think the House managers have made a compelling case uh, about the president's role 
both leading up to January 6th and on January 6th. I, I, I realize uh, my next question is, is um, relying on supposition on your part, but given, given the evidence of the tapes uh, by the House, the house managers, um, as, as damning as, uh, I mean, the, the video, I should say, as damning as the tapes were for, in, in Nixon's case, the fact that uh, it doesn't look like former President Trump will be convicted, doesn't it uh, harken back to his infamous statement that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and, and not lose any voters? Well, it does, it does harken back. It does, it does make you think back to that statement. Um, and... Uh, the only thing I could say is at least, well, he did get a lot of votes, but I think you're right. I mean, I think it does harken back to that statement that he could get away with anything. And it also heart reminds us that for all the bad things that you appropriately can say, as I said before, about Donald Trump, he is a very effective demagogue. He knows how to use propaganda. He knows how to uh, you repeat a lie often enough and you do it in an effective manner. You get people to buy into it. That's what happened in the big lie leading up to, about the election, leading up to the insurrection. But that's been true of him before that. He's a, he is an effective demagogue. Based on your experience with Watergate, coupled with the present moment, is there any way to, quote unquote, move on other than the manner that is being pursued right now? Well, I, I think, look, I would like. The way to move on would be if both parties, including the Republican Party, demonstrated a willingness to move on. You know, hoping that President Biden has a successful presidency and that people with Trump not having the levers of power just get bored with him and his antics um, and that the country gradually uh, moves on because he's not in the center of power. Do you think it's necessary for the House managers to call witnesses? I don't think so. I mean, I think that they've effectively called witnesses without calling witnesses. What I mean by that is they've effectively used uh, the tapes of the president himself, former president. They've used the tapes of the uh, rioters and demonstrators. They've used the tapes of comments of various, uh, particularly Republican elected officials, um, and so they've, they've brought into the dialogue of the trial views and statements of, of third parties. I don't think calling witnesses live will, will change the result. I think those who are declining to vote to convict are, are largely doing so based on political grounds, not based on the merit. In addition to the, to the impeachment trial, there, there are a number of things that former President Trump did, they were not illegal per se, but certainly beyond the, the ethos of the office of president. And what I mean by that, not turning over tax returns, which opens up uh, uh, a conflict, potential conflict of interest. Even the inauguration became a, finan a potential financial windfall because the president raised more money than anyone else, and it seems to be there's a gap between what was spent and how much was raised. Do we want to just say, oh, well, that was President Trump? Or do, are, are these things that I just mentioned something that should be considered codified by law? I think that there are some areas where you can look at what President Trump did 
and say, we can create a legislative or in some cases a constitutional adjustment to prevent that from happening again. And I think when we can come up with those areas, we should definitely do it. In some areas, we have to be honest. It's going to depend on the integrity of the person in the White House. And President Trump broke many norms. And I think that, you know, some, as I say, you can fix uh, and some require us to just hopefully elect people of more integrity and commitment to democracy. Roger Davis, former U.S. attorney for the Special Prosecutor's Office during the Watergate hearings, as well as uh, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. Sir, I want to thank you so much for lending your expertise and knowledge to the public morality. Much appreciated. Uh, my, my pleasure. Thank you. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) ¶¶